If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I'm talking with my good friend, Ian Adair. Ian is a three-time nonprofit CEO with 25 years of nonprofit management, fundraising, and communication experience. He's built his career rebuilding struggling nonprofits into thriving organizations. He's done it by winning donor attention, cultivating strong board, and by revitalizing mission awareness with stakeholders and community partners. And in the process, he's raised tens of millions of dollars. I think what Ian is most known for, though, is his passion and advocacy for mental health awareness, particularly in the workplace. He speaks about it on stages around the world, and he writes about it in his book, Stronger Than Stigma. After decades on the front lines of fundraising and nonprofit leadership, he's recently made a big change, taking on the role of Director of Leadership Development and Credentialing with AFP Global. Like, whoa, we're going to talk about that. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tammy. I'm so excited to be here and for the opportunity to share and, and have a great conversation with you because I always love having great conversations with you over the years. Oh, thank you. Me too. All right. So first, congratulations on the new role. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been exciting as much as relocating to a new state and selling a house can be exciting. The role has been something that's really helped ground me and helped kind of welcome me to Virginia and welcome me to AFP Global. And so I'm incredibly excited. I think we're 100 days in to the new role. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about it. What's the role and what are your priorities? Well, I'm the new Director of Leadership Development and Credentialing. It's a new role at AFP. That title has a lot packed into it, but my priorities will include designing, delivering, and measuring the impact of the association's leadership development and credentialing overall strategy, which includes leadership development experiences, educational content, and some of our high growth programs. 
AFP has been convening fundraising thought leaders and nonprofit sector stakeholders for some time, all about how to better support the leadership development of fundraisers. And these efforts have helped really lay the foundation for this work and how we can better support our 28,000 plus growing membership. All of these efforts stem from the shortage of qualified, diverse, prepared leaders and the need to really get fundraisers prepared for leadership roles. I think throughout the nonprofit sector, we've discussed the large and growing gap in nonprofit leadership as a result of baby boomers retiring, which has all been exasperated by the pandemic, really leaving nonprofits struggling to fill the leadership pipeline. And all of this has made the need for more leadership development that needs to be created and available uh, to nonprofit professionals. So we're really designing and planning leadership development content for fundraisers at different stages of their career. And we're incredibly excited to roll out some of these offerings and experiences later this year. Super exciting. And you're right. I completely agree. It's so needed. So what do you want to accomplish? Do you have some specific goals in mind? Well, yeah. All of these opportunities where people got together in in the last couple of years, we've gotten some amazing direction of where we want to go. I think we've seen over the years the number of articles and online discussions and webinars debating the issues surrounding fundraising attrition. Why do fundraisers leave the profession? Why aren't fundraisers moving into executive director or other leadership roles? And I think there's been really no better time for fundraisers to move into more leadership roles. And it's our goal at AFP, like what we really want to accomplish out of this, after being considered largely the gold standard of providing tactical fundraising educational content, to now be able to offer curriculum, educational experience, and professional skills and development to really support fundraisers taking that next step in their careers. Yeah, it's so important. I get excited hearing you describe that because I know through my career and with colleagues, as a fundraiser, whether you're the chief development officer or the director development or a fundraising manager, like whatever role you're in, but particularly at those top roles. As a fundraiser, you really kind of have a, yes, you develop relationships with donors through events, through individual cultivation, et cetera, through you know, foundation leader relationship building. But largely when it comes to the public face, sometimes as fundraisers, we're kind of not on the stage. We're shining that spotlight on our executive director, on our board members, on our donors, on our funders, and lifting them up. And so it really is a transition to move from the behind the scenes coordinator, right? Like orchestrating all of this acknowledgement and these transformational gifts and et cetera, to stepping into the spotlight as an executive director or CEO. It's a very different role. And it calls on us to develop and hone very different skills. Yeah, it's a very different skill set. But I think it's one that fundraisers are ready to rise to the challenge. I look at and what I hear when we've done surveys before about why maybe fundraisers leave a position or an organization or maybe why they consider 
leaving the sector. And a lot of the pain points really have to do with just synergy with leadership, synergy with board leadership, synergy with executive director leadership. And who better to fill that role and change that paradigm to move a fundraiser into the executive director role? Well, hopefully you will no longer hear from the fundraiser that works for that leader that the executive director doesn't understand fundraising because they would. The executive director isn't a partner in this work. The executive director is not helping me explain or share the importance of fundraising with the board. So all of these things that we've seen previous have that have led to fundraisers, you know, feeling frustrated, feeling burned out, and possibly leaving an organization. I think you would start to see those dominoes start to fall the other way, and you would have organizations led by teams now, and the organizational structure and the leadership structure will be a little bit more flat because you have partners truly in this work and knowing how important fundraising is, having an executive director that has an extensive amount of experience and knows what that's like, being able to really be a true mentor, coach, colleague, and partner, I think really changes everything. I agree. And I think it will be transformational. So excited. Yeah. So congratulations yeah, we'll, to you. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I hope. And again, it's a lot because we're changing something here. But I really think this is what the sector has asked for. We both follow what's going on on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook yes. groups. And we see the frustration and we try to change and we try to coach people, professionals when working through pain points and issues that they're having. And, you know, I think now's the time especially as we're easing out of the pandemic and as we're learning as fundraisers, we have to be flexible. We have to have agility in what we do. We can't be too set on what best practices were and understand that we have to utilize emerging practices and be flexible with that and how they exist with things that maybe worked in the past. And then you mix the two and it's much different now. So I'm excited to see how that goes. And I'm looking forward to hopefully AFP being one of the leaders behind this new shift in our sector. Yeah. Oh, it is exciting. And so again, congratulations to you. And frankly, congratulations to us. Like we in the sector, members of AFP, and really everyone working in the sector and our communities will benefit from the fruits of this initiative. So, so very excited. All right. So, you know, I mentioned in the intro that one of the things that you are really well known for is your passion and advocacy for mental health. Mental health is a really hot topic now. Thank goodness. So it's always been a big issue, but of course, stigma has kept us from talking about it, at least talking openly about it. So thanks to you and others, we're beginning to understand that mental health care and well-being is health care and well-being, just as viable and important important and crucial as good physical health. Let's talk about that. Like who is leading the conversation around mental health and who isn't? What are some of the fears about disclosing mental health challenges or the barriers to that? Just tell us, inspire us and educate us. Pull us on this, Ian. Well, it is a subject that I'm extremely passionate about. I know you've heard me before speak about it. And I'm passionate about it for a lot of different reasons. I'm very open about issues in my family, very open about challenges that I've had to overcome myself early in my career with depression and anxiety. I come from a household where my father battled addiction for a very long time until he left the scene. And I was very young and then a mother and brother who battled mental illness and had a couple of suicide attempts 
between them. So this issue has been really near and dear and close to my heart for a very long time. But like so many people, I didn't speak up about it till much later in life, till I was in my late 30s. I started feeling more comfortable after getting some help, after doing some of my own deep work of research and reading and talking to other people about the importance of sharing and meeting people in that space that made me comfortable to say, okay, I'm dealing with it very well. Maybe it might be beneficial if I talk about it openly and see who else might need some help. And so I think we've seen over the years that the conversation around, around mental illness and addiction has become more open and public. But I believe we're still seeing a little bit of a shortfall concerns how the stigma of mental illness still affects everyday people. Now, when you ask the question, who's talking about it? We see more celebrities disclosing issues with addiction or issues or challenges with depression or anxiety. We see people, and obviously, in the performing arts space, in the music space, talking about it a lot more openly. People with large followings, whether however they have those followings, whether they're on YouTube or whether they're what we call internet famous, they're being more open and honest and authentic about it. But we give those people and professional athletes as well. I don't want to leave that group out because they've been incredible advocates over the last few years. But we give those people a little bit of air cover. And I think we do that, Tammy, is because we see that they're in the public light so much that when they do disclose, we kind of take, take a step back and go, well, if I was in the public that much, I might have some anxiety about people always talking about me, always judging mm-hmm. everything that I do. And that could lead to that. So we feel for them a little bit. There's a little more what I call air cup. Yeah. Kind of more empathy or understanding that, well, of course they would struggle with that. They're in right. a microscope. I, Got it. And I think the last five years, there's lots of examples of that, but we don't oddly enough, give that same empathy, understanding or air cover, as I sometimes call it, be all encompassing to each other. And the damnedest thing about mental health challenges is when we go through them, we feel like we're the only person on the planet at that point in time going through them. But just doing a simple Google search, walking through your living room and asking Alexa, asking Surrey on your iPhone, just a simple question, you know, how prevalent is this? Who's, how many people in our country are suffering from mental health challenges? We'll learn that 20 to 25% of people are suffering at any given time but it makes us internalize things uh, and, and makes us treat ourselves not very kindly. And we don't give ourselves the grace that we give others. So when I talk about, you know, why is this hard to talk about? And when you bring up the question of what are some of the fears, I think for everyday people, working professionals, retired seniors, uh, students, when we disclose, we still fear losing the three things that matter the most in our lives. And that's our friends, our families, and our jobs. But disclosing a mental illness or disclosing addiction challenge shouldn't mean losing the people or the support system that could help get us through those challenges. And so that's where we need to start having deeper conversations. That's why I advocate so much for mental health awareness and wellness in the workplace, because we spend, and we know this, we spend more time at work most people than we do with our friends, than we do with our families. And so we have to say, okay, the old paradigm of 
when you walk through the door at work or when you pull into the parking lot, you leave all your personal issues there and you become a whole different person when you begin your work or when you're around your colleagues. And that was the prevalent mantra for a long time. I've heard that so many times. Oh, yeah. Right? My whole career, really. And it, it's only until maybe the last five or six years mm-hmm. did this start to change. And it started to change, I would say, a little bit pre-pandemic where people, workforces and employees were demanding a little bit more. And we were wanting our jobs to be a little bit more meaningful to us. We were wanting to have you know, a purpose when we went to work. We wanted our, our organizations to treat their employees as well as they were treating the populations they were serving. Imagine that. You know, we got to take care of the people. Taking care of the people is the goofy thing that I like yes. to say. Yeah, I love so that. It's so been true. interesting. And then I think through COVID, it just, it, it just amplified this need that we have to take care of our people. And I think as we look at leadership and we look at what's being asked of leaders today, this is one of the number one things that we're throwing out there. You brought up the pandemic. Did the pandemic improve the situation or did it move it forward or was it a setback for mental health? I think it did a lot of things. For the people that had a hard time understanding or maybe associating in any way with depression, anxiety, isolation, the silver lining of the pandemic was the people that had never been exposed to that started to feel that. Don't know how you're going to respond until we take away emotional connection from you. And you see a lot of people, you know, first couple of weeks into it, working from home or working remotely was one of those things that you really thought would be this great thing. We had this vision of Chardonnay and Netflix all day. <laughs> it was going to be this grand experience where we walked around in our PJs with headsets on and, and really dove into work. And then we kept telling we were going to come back and we didn't come back. We were tell another month we'd come back and we didn't come back. And I think taking a step back and looking at companies and organizations, the most taboo thing you could ask for pre-pandemic was a flexible work schedule. But if you do any survey on employees and the workforce and demands and what they're asking for, especially Generation Z and millennials, the younger workforce, I say younger, but they're the bigger part of the workforce. 70% of the workforce is under the age of 40. What they want in a work environment is a flexible work schedule. And so I think companies thought, okay, this is what you've always wanted. We're going to send you home. Like it took a pandemic (laughs) to to meet the demands of their employees. And then we discovered to our horror that when they did the research, people were working longer at home. People weren't taking breaks. People weren't talking or having any emotional connection to their colleagues. So And of course, working from home became very different during the pandemic than working from home in 2016, meaning you could have a roommate or a spouse or a significant other or a best friend or whoever living with you. Now you all realize very quickly you didn't have the internet bandwidth for everyone to be on Zoom calls at once. Then if your child was home, you became quickly a homeschool teacher, and that made things chaotic. And because of the stigma of remote work, just the icing on the cake, you worked harder and you answered calls, emails, and notifications on your phone like you were 911 operators. Yeah. So 
it didn't help our mental health at all. It put us in a chaotic situation where there was no clear line between what was home and what was work. Sure. Uh, And all at once, right? I think about when my children were small, I would work during the day and I would come home and we would have dinner together and then I would help them with homework. But the pandemic means I'm, to your point, I'm helping with homework and being their school teacher in the middle of my work day. I mean, it's just incredibly stressful. And in all those breaks where you were doing other things, whether you're taking care of maybe a sick parent, maybe during this incredibly stressful time, because of the, so many layoffs that were happening and so many people getting ripped from their companies and organizations, you might have had the additional stress of being the sole earner in your household, in addition to being a possibly a homeschool teacher as well. So our stress levels went way up. Our anxiety levels went way up. Like I said, the stigma of remote work kept us working longer. I think on average, the research has shown we worked two to three hours longer when we were working from home. So when the organizations started getting this research, especially the corporate level, they're like, wow, we're really onto something here. It was accidental. We found a way to get more productive, harder working employees who are afraid to take off time. And so it really did not help our mental health at all. And I think for most people, the lack of connectiveness and how many of us became emotionally distant, not just socially distant, caused an increase in feelings of anxiety and depression and isolation. And for many people, that was the first time, if they hadn't had an opportunity to experience anything before with them themselves or a family member, to really feel that. And that was scary for a lot of people. Yeah. And so now let's just think about this hybrid model that we have where so many people are working home part of the time, right? Flexible work schedule, going into the office part of the time. And maybe we still don't have those emotional bonds and connections with our peers, even though we see them once a week in the office or maybe we're on a rotation. Even though the pandemic conditions have improved, the situation related to mental and behavioral health really hasn't. Is that accurate? I I think it has. You know, we try to put spins on things like we bring socially distant. What does that mean? I think the joke I commonly use when I speak on stage is socially distant for many of us was the most awkward version of ourselves in middle school or high school. (laughs) That was socially distant. We wanted to be social, but people were very distant from us. So you're not seeing the improvement that we need to see because of what people were meant to feel during the pandemic. Now people might've been experiencing something. The other side of that is how do they get help? The other side of that is who's offering resources. The other side of that is they start to fear that they might lose one of the three things that matters the most to them. Um, And so that's where I'm trying to get organizations and companies to take some responsibility through this to better support their people. One of the things I really like to say is that leadership today is about taking care of the people responsible for the work, not just the work itself. And this is where this comes in. Like, what can we offer? I think through startup culture, we thought employees wanted beanbags, beer refrigerators, and ping pong tables. What we really learned was they want a better way to connect with their community. We really learned was to have meaning to them. They wanted ways to take care of themselves, whether that was some type of wellness program, whether that was some type of physical health program. Those are the things that became more attractive to people in their workspace, not just some of those 
kind of flashy things that we saw from startup culture that happened in, in the early and mid 2000s. Sure. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's Executive Director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang. We love Bloomerang because it's so, like, it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang. Year over year, we have raised more funds, so obviously I think Bloomerang's been a, a huge part of that. By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. So Ian, if you would talk specifically about the mental health and self-care and wellness for fundraising professionals. Most of our audience are direct fundraisers or have some role in fundraising. Yeah, I, I think fundraisers have experienced an incredible amount of stress and anxiety over the last couple of years. I would speak and talk about mental health in the workplace and talk about the importance of self-care. And we'll dive into that in just a second. And then I would had people line up and tell me they've never faced this type of pressure before. Before, it was always just about the bottom line and meeting a budget. Now they're being told by leadership, and really, this was the worst thing that could have ever happened, was if you can't fundraise, then we have to let someone on our team go. So now that added pressure of my colleagues are counting on me for their livelihood, the programs that we offer and the population that we serve are counting on me more than ever before. And that's a lot for anybody. I was never more disappointed in nonprofit leadership when I started hearing how much that was happening over probably a period of six months after a couple months into the pandemic, almost through the end of the calendar year. And I would constantly caution how we went about just kind of conveying the need. I think we all knew we couldn't do live events. And so that was going to be, we have to replace that income. I think we all knew we couldn't do tours of our facilities and share our programs. So we were going to have to think of creative ways to get the word out and show impact. But for fundraisers, it was an incredibly stressful time over the last couple of years. And I think, and I'm glad that we started to see the rise of more people talking about self-care, understanding what that is. I think there's what I would call a gross misunderstanding of what it is. I think TV and Hollywood has glamorized self-care as hot stone massages <laughs> and weekends in St. Bart's and cruises with coastal skylines for miles. When research tells us and psychologists tell us it's anything that could put us in a different mood. It could be a walk in the neighborhood. It could be time with our pets. I have a couple of fur babies that I got <laughs> I call them my quarantine puppies that really help the mental health and well-being of my family during this time. It's understanding that anything that can put us in a different state of mind, whether it's that one song we play on repeat that drives everyone in the house a little batty that we always constantly play. For me, it. it's Lizzo. Oh, there you go. 
I'm a huge Journey fan. I got to see him in concert like seven, seven eight months ago, and I was in just uh, fanboy nerd heaven. It's anything that can change our mood. Yeah. But here's the thing. As fundraisers, we need to do what we do best. We need to be intentional about self-care. We need to schedule it. Don't just put donor meetings and don't just put stewardship letters and don't just put grant writing on your calendar. Put drink some water. Put take a walk in the neighborhood. Put reconnect with the friend that puts you in a good mood. Turn off notifications. That was the best thing I ever did was turn off notifications on my phone. I think I became a little bit visceral every time I heard that noise from my phone, that notification was happening. So we have to look at what self-care is and look at it very differently and understand that we have to be intentional to take care of ourselves so we can do this work in the best mindset. Because again, whatever analogy you want to use, you can't pour from an empty cup. The analogy of the airlines tells us to put our mask on first before we help others. We have to truly live that when we're in fundraising because we carry so much weight as it is. We carry so much of the pressure of our organization as it is, and we can't continue to be successful. We can't continue to be productive if we can't take care of ourselves. Yeah. I want to talk about what role leadership plays in this effort. I feel like conceptually, our executive directors, our CEOs are good, caring, compassionate people. They're purpose-driven they care about employees. Conceptually, of course, they buy into wellness and self-care and taking care of people. But when the pressure is on, when the gap in the budget exists, when they can't hire program staff or retain program staff fast enough to meet the need for service delivery, and maybe it's a fee-for-service analogy. So they're under the pressure. They can easily, I see it, day in, day out. I hear the stories. I know you do too. And a lot of our listeners live this. When the pressure cooker's on, we revert back to the old thinking, the old way of being and leading. And it goes back to no money, no mission. Fix it. Right. What are you going to do? How do we help our CEOs, our leaders break that and step into like create systems and structures and a culture that truly honors self-care, like under any circumstances. Like you said, it's tough. And the last thing any leader wants to hear is that they need further education and training on a subject matter (laughs) and that they might not be prepared to be the best leader possible. I run into this all the time. I think it's critical for organizations and for leaders of those organizations to understand that mental health is just as important to physical health. And it's okay to say that. And that the mental health and well-being of our employees is just as important as the mental health and well-being of the populations we serve. Might be controversial. Don't want you to lose any sponsors on that. That's what, <laughs> that's what I tell people. And, and, and it takes a while for the mindset to shift. I, I believe the workplace leadership has the power to change this conversation in a huge way, because I think once they realize that mental health impacts every aspect of an organization, the recruitment, the retention, the morale, and yes, even for those that still haven't made their way to having a heart about this (laughs) and the financial bottom line, the greatest loss of productivity and absenteeism in the workplace is due 
to people suffering from mental health challenges. I tell leaders all the time, the best thing that you can do is just normalize the conversations about mental health, which is initially the best way to help reduce stigma in the workplace. The goal for leaders should be to promote the acceptance and the inclusion of those dealing with the mental health related issue. And they can do that really in a number of ways. It's improving support systems, spreading awareness whenever possible, creating environments for safe discussions and education to take place. So leaders have a tremendous amount of opportunity here. If we can implement some concrete strategies to create an environment that promotes psychological safety, promotes well-being in our employees. And we just have to be able to implement. We just have to take the turn and do that. Yeah. And I think it does, takes the vision and the commitment, and really it takes some courage. Yeah. We know that 70% of the workforce is under the age of 40. I've mentioned that, but we look at nonprofit leadership. A majority of nonprofit leaders are over the age of 40. So there's a lot here we have to peel back and we have to uncover and say, okay, we have to address this in a way so they understand the reasoning behind all of this. If you have a leader that's grown up, I'm a Gen Xer, I'm 48 years old. Would you have somebody that was grown up only with two real leadership styles we were introduced to for the longest time, authoritarian and authoritative? We didn't come into the workplace expecting to have a voice right away. Well, that's what a majority of the workforce expects today. We didn't come into the workforce expecting our organizations or our companies that care about our mental health and well-being. That was considered our responsibility. So just looking at some of those things and what employees want now from their organizations and seeing that research, and that is consistent across the board, those things that we were conditioned to care about the most when it came to work and employment, meaning salary and title, are no longer the case. We talk about the demands of these two new generations in the workforce, but these demands are all the things that we secretly wanted for a long time. Yes. There's nothing on this list that I didn't go, wow, I wish I had a really great employee wellness program I could have taken advantage of. And those are, I wish I had an opportunity to give back to my community as part of my job. And this is what we're struggling with now. And I think the leaders that are, are seeing that research and the leaders that are taking the time to educate themselves are seeing the differences in their organizations with all of those major factors that we all think about as leaders when building a great organization, which are recruitment and retention and, and definitely financial bottom line as well. Yeah. So there is the return on investment. I feel like leaders of a certain age, <clears throat> myself included, we just have to suspend what we've known to be true and begin with beginner's mind. Look at, as you're saying, look at the research. And instead of thinking we have to have all the answers, maybe we just need to ask better question. Yeah. Yeah. I think that kind of leads to a point that I always try to make when I really talk to leaders who are really diving into this work and I can tell I have a deep desire to make really, really big changes to improve things for their employees. I think leaders have truly become the culture caretakers for our organization. And that really just means the responsibility of taking care of others. We talk about work culture all the time and what can improve it and how will that improve morale and how will that get our employees talking about us in the community and how will that improve 
recruitment and all these things. But I mean, I kind of fell in love with that term, culture caretakers. It was coined by an author named Linda Thornton, and she used it to describe her thoughts on ethical leadership. So I thought we were really onto something here. And just think about the word caretaker. It's associated with hard work. It's associated with messy work. And that's what we do each and every day. Leaders uh, today must really embrace our responsibility as culture caretakers within our companies to take care of our people. And I think now more than ever, it's essential to educate our workforce about mental health resources and the importance of nurturing an environment of openness at work in regards to mental health. And I think all those things lead to cultivating a culture of empathy, psychological safety and wellness, but this requires real consistent effort on the part of the leader. Yeah, so good. All right, last official question for you, Ian. What predictions, advice, or thoughts about mental health in the nonprofit workplace do you want to leave our listeners with? Prediction, advice, or thoughts? Wow, predictions. I think organizations willing to do this deep work, organizations willing to to address mental health and well-being in the workplace will be the organizations that see the most success. Drop the mic, whatever you want to say after that. I just think the case studies are there. The examples are there. People report back to me all the time, maybe six months after I had an opportunity to speak with them or after reading the book that they really decided to dive in and they had great buy-in, especially when they talked to their employees because you know, what employee wouldn't want caring, empathetic manager to report to, or what employee wouldn't want a leader who's willing to be vulnerable and share a mental health challenge and to create an atmosphere where disclosure is safe and that you could go to somebody and, and ask for help and get accommodations and make it feel like you didn't have to leave an organization because of what you were going through. So that's my predictions are do the work, be consistent about the work, and then you will see the benefits and the positive results from it. Yeah, sounds like a powerful call to action to me, Ian. Thank you. At the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions just to give a little more value to our listeners. Are you ready? Do I have the answer as rapidly as you asked them? I'm going to do air quotes around rapid. Okay, okay. So my wife would say, don't be long-winded. And all right, I'll do my best. I'm ready. All right, first question. What's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? Wow. I think any fundraiser can tell you they've received their share of advice. The best fundraising advice that I've received wasn't even from a fundraiser, but I applied it to fundraising and I made it work. And I recall this all the time when I get frustrated with my fundraising. Never feel guilty, uncomfortable, awkward, or undeserving. I'm trying to list everything you could possibly feel when doing your fundraising. I hear from fundraisers all the time that they don't want to ask because of a recession. They don't feel comfortable to ask because of a pandemic. They don't want to continue to follow up with an ask because it's a board member. I had to get over a lot of those blocks too for quite a many years in my career because I kept finding myself putting those up and I was feeling uncomfortable or awkward or undeserving of supporting my organization. And now I tell people, be excited, show enthusiasm embrace your authenticity, and be proud of your organization's work and impact. And that should overcome the awkwardness and the uncomfortableness and help you with your work. And I think that really helped me turn a corner to be a more successful fundraiser. So good. 
Ian, what books do you recommend to our audience and why? Wow. Knowing that you've already interviewed some amazing authors and some of those folks are my friends to play Switzerland. I'm not going to say any of their books, but they're all good. I think for me, what one of the things that helped me, and I know this book's helped a lot of fundraisers, is really start with why with Simon Sinek. But then as a step forward, if you haven't seen the book that followed that one, which was Find Your Why, it's more of a workbook. I have found that. I just got it last year. I found it incredibly helpful. And it was really designed for those who were inspired by Start With Why to do the work, to find their why, and to bring that into their professional lives and into their organization. So it's like Start With Why 2.0, and it's definitely worth looking into. Fantastic. We'll include links to both of those books in the show notes. Excellent. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraising professional must possess? Wow. The three magical... See, this is so hard because I think you could probably Google this and get a hundred different answers. I'll just say what I think has helped me the most, and that's be a strong listener. I think fundraisers sometime, especially early career fundraisers, are, are so nervous and really want to get their pitch out there and really want to describe their organization and everything. I think when I started really, really listening to donors, like as in barely talking, which I know for anybody listening, they would find that incredibly unusual. But being a strong listener, being a great storyteller mm-hmm. and flexibility. Yeah. Flexibility, I can't stress enough in the nonprofit sector and fundraising. You just have to be flexible. And I think once you put all those three things together, some magic happens. Yeah. Magic combo. What's your favorite fundraising tool or application? I'm going to go with database. And here's the funny thing about that answer. I'm not a data person and I don't advocate that strongly for data and fundraising to the chagrin. I know somewhere Clay Buck just felt like someone punched him in the stomach. Uh, a a data angel just died. Right. Or a data (laughs) angel just lost its wings. But, But at the end of the day, I do populate a database with great information and it's immensely helpful in my success. So database. All right, good. Now this one's another little tricky one that you are going to want to play Switzerland with because I know you speak at a lot of conferences and at a lot of AFP luncheons, you know, chapter meetings. What's your favorite conference, Ian? Wow, you're really trying to kick me off some Christmas list with <laughs> this one. The pandemic really helped the conference scene get a real kick in the imagination pants. I've seen a lot of creativity. I like what our good friend Tim Sarantonio is doing at Generosity Exchange. So shout out to what Tim and and Neon is doing in the virtual conference space with that. Of course, I've been personally involved with the Nonprofit Storytelling Conference since the beginning. And so a huge fan of Mark Pittman and everything that conference has been able to do. Super glad I've been affiliated with it as long as I have. And I know this is going to sound a little bit like a Switzerland answer, but I'm going to say it. I really like AFP Lead. I spoke there for four years in a row before I started working at AFP, but I think as a conference, it's seen the largest evolution in being a chapter leader event to being more of a nonprofit leadership event. And that was seen this year and and it being the largest and the biggest it's ever been. And so I think now that I work for AFP, 
I'm excited to even see how this conference is going to evolve in the future. And there's some really exciting things to come. So I'm going to say AFP lead. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self just getting started in the profession? Go into stand-up comedy. Fundraising is not for you. <laughs> no, but, but I would say there's so many aspects of fundraising that puts you on an emotional roller coaster. So many, whether it's connections or meeting with people or, or having to feel like you have to follow up with people a lot. And there's just so many things. So I would say don't become nostalgic or romantic. And I'm trying to be deliberate in my terminology about how things work and their success. Meaning what success looks like will change many times in your career, mm. depending on the size of the organization, the region you live and how susceptible that region is to natural disasters. I just moved from Florida. And what's the last hurricane that kicked me out of the state called? Hurricane Ian. I mean, it couldn't have been more. I had, I mean, it was just the most poetic ending to leaving a state and leaving fundraising. And, and you never know what's going to happen. Obviously, recessions and pandemics and things like that make us change and rethink how we do things. So I don't want anybody who's had any success in fundraising, again, to be nostalgic of this is, we used to do this and it works so well. Or romantic is when I worked for this organization, this event brought in seven figures. And, but here they're excited about low six figures. Don't do that. I think we have to understand that success looks many different ways and it's going to look many different ways throughout your career. Yeah. Uh, and I think the relationships and the impact your organizations are able to have with the fundraising that you're able to do, that should be your barometer of success. I love it. Ian, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. This was, this was a lot of fun. You went very James Lipton inside the actor's studio with that last bit. I really like it. Well, That's, thank, thank you very I was, much. I was prepared to explain my favorite swear word in fundraising. Or I, I mean, it's, I love it. It's great stuff. Maybe we'll add that to the next interview. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> thank you so much, Tammy. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's our pleasure for certain. If you want to learn more about the incredible Ian Adair or the Association of Fundraising Professionals, we've included links in today's show notes. You'll also find links to the other resources that we've talked about today, including Ian's book, Stronger Than Stigma. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast and keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, 
where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransform.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.